Hello everybody, today is Sunday, December 30th, and we're bringing you Block Digest 151, the season finale at Block Height 556,258. What's going on? Man, season finale is right. I mean, I was going back through the images. It looks like we started the season back in the summer. So, yeah, like half a year here and uh, closing it out, right? The end of the year. A lot of stuff been going on this year. So should be a good uh, a good final season finality, you know, getting everything together before our little two-week break here. So, uh, yeah, how's it been going for you this morning, Janine, or this evening over there, Janine? Uh, well, mostly was just looking at how many blocks were between the first episode of Block Digest and today's episode, and it is indeed somewhere uh, right past 75,000. 75,000 blocks ago we did the first episode. So pretty interesting. Oh, and your cat decided to join us. Oh, hey, Bugs. Yeah, 75,000 blocks. My goodness. Yeah, we need to start. Uh, we need to keep up with the... Uh, the block clock uh, measurement. So 75,000 blocks, five seasons down. Let's see how many thousands of blocks for another five seasons. And uh, yeah, you know, we change things up here. So maybe our seasons will get shorter or extended. We don't know. We'll, we'll have to see. Could be 150,000 blocks. Mm-hmm. But, you know, in interest of the season finale. We've kind of been cutting, covering the OPTECH newsletter for a while now, just because with the main stories we're covering, we've been getting kind of really tight on time. And, you know, honestly, I hope most of you are actually reading these on your own anyway at this point. But we thought we'd start off with the year in review and just kind of buzz through all the shit that's happened this year. So, uh, the last uh, newsletter for the year is pretty much just a month-by-month -month breakdown of all the big technical improvements that have happened this year. So let's just dive into it. Uh, starting in January, the Reckless movement kicked off. And despite Lightning being live on Mainnet a little bit before that, this is when businesses really started uh, tinkering around and integrating things while everything was very immature and the whole Reckless meme took off. So that's pretty much been a steady thing this whole year. It was also uh, the publication month for the Schnorr-based Musig uh, multi-sig uh, scheme put together by Greg Maxwell, Andrew Palestra, Yannick Surin, and Peter Woola. So this was pretty much the start of really tinkering with the, the big problem child of Schnorr, which is a, a multi-sig that can't be manipulated to create uh, technically valid signatures, but fraudulent in 
the fact that they're not signed by the intended parties. So that's kind of been the real core mathematical problem in dealing with Schnorr is setting things up in a way where you can't just kind of set things up in a way that allows you to remove keys and then sign with parties missing and still have a valid transaction. And January is also when Greg Maxwell came up with the uh, taproot scheme, which was a optimization of MAST to allow more complex uh, scripting conditions in a little more private manner than um, the vanilla MAST implementation where you could spend the normal condition without actually revealing that it was ever uh, a mass script unless some of the other paths were used. And following in February, uh, Greg Maxwell hit it out of the park yet again and came up with Graftroot, which was a way to kind of shoehorn in new complex spending conditions um, after the fact. So you could actually send coins to a script and then without moving them to another one, kind of delegate different spending conditions. So let's say you have three people who are able to spend these coins. They would actually be able to give the ability to other people to spend those coins in certain conditions without actually moving them from that address. So that, especially when you start looking at, you know, potential legal agreements or things like inheritance, like that is a very powerful thing in that you can you know, like delegate spending ability with the coins just sitting there unmoved. So it's a huge efficiency gain, a huge privacy gain, and just a huge utility gain. And then also in February, uh, roast beef and uh, Connor uh, Frompnecht, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, uh, came up with a multi-path routing scheme for Lightning that did not link all the routes of a path or all the different paths of a payment so that they could be linked together as a single payment, which was a huge privacy improvement for Lightning, obviously. That brings us into March. And honestly, the, the biggest uh, news in March was BIP 322. Uh, and this BIP was kind of created to address a longstanding issue in that signing arbitrary messages with Bitcoin keys uh, doesn't really work with anything except the uh, pay to public key hash because the, the way it works is pretty much with the address derived from the public key and the signature, you're able to mathematically figure out the key to verify the signature. And for things like pay to script hash, you know, uh, SegWit, other things, there's not really a standardized way because it doesn't work the same way to have arbitrary messages that can be uh, verified. And so this BIP was set up to create a, a new verification scheme for signatures so that any key connected to any address type could actually sign arbitrary messages, which is, you know, it's not like operation critical for anything, but it, it was kind of an annoyance because you couldn't do things like prove uh, possession of a balance, uh, prove that you had an address that spent money to somebody and then things like that, which do have different, you know, audit use cases or business use cases for 
things like proving entitlement to a refund and so on. In April, uh, Christian Decker, Rusty Russell, and Roast Beef dropped the L2 uh, proposal, as well as, uh, I believe, Channel Factories were dropped at the same time. And the SIGHASH uh, no input BIP, which would allow a um, transaction or a signature that would be valid, not just for one specific output, but any output that uses the exact same script. And so this really, in my opinion, laid the groundwork for most of the real long-term utility I see coming from Lightning Network, like actual efficiency that will scale beyond, you know, a few tens or hundreds of millions of people just being able to use it very conservatively uh, in regards to block space. And I think, you know, this is probably one of the most important things to really get into the protocol in the short to midterm, aside from Schnorr signatures, uh, to really get like a viable second layer that's scalable in a way where we're not going to run into the we need bigger blocks or this will stop working argument all over again. So that was a huge improvement. Uh, May, uh, a draft bit for the Dandelion transaction relay protocol was dropped. And so that is pretty much a proposal where you would send a transaction to a single node, which would relay it to a single node out to a certain depth and then blast it out to the entire network so that it's not really viable to tie a, a transactions propagation to an individual node, which is something that will be a huge help in terms of the like network level of privacy, because you, you can do a lot of things to really protect yourself on chain. But if you're leaking information on the network level, it's, not really a big jump from there to kind of undermine your on-chain privacy things. Uh, that brings us into June, where Matt Carello dropped his Better Hash proposal, a kind of replacement or extension for the Stratum mining protocol that would allow transaction selection for miners to be a, a lot more decentralized. So you would still have to really kind of trust a pool entity to collect the uh, block rewards and then actually pay those out to individual miners, but it would allow miners to have their own um, transaction selection for the block templates that they're constructing. And so this way, even though miners have to financially trust the pool to actually pay them, they don't have to trust the pool to not censor transactions. And so you know, theoretically, this could really help the censorship resistance of, you know, a transaction actually making it into a block. And as well, this was also the month that a vulnerability was published that would allow a fake SPV proof uh, be, to be constructed for a transaction that's not actually in a block. And while this was pretty theoretically interesting, Ultimately, the, the cost of doing so was in the millions of dollars. And so realistically, it's not really that practical of an attack. And it's very simply dealt with by running a full node. Also, this was when Satoshi's place kicked off. 
that brings us to July, where Peter Woolley dropped the draft BIP of the Schnorr signature proposal, which is obviously a, a huge thing. And, you know, hopefully he stops getting distracted by other things and gets that finished in the next year or two. It was also the month that the pay to endpoint coin join payment uh, proposal was dropped, where you would effectively have a person making a payment have the receiver of the payment create an input in the transaction as well and make it look like both inputs belong to the same person based on how blockchain analytics heuristics actually analyze transactions. And so merchants who support this can actually not only help anonymize their customers, but also gain a benefit in that it's condensing their outputs as they're receiving transactions. So there's really a twofold benefit from this. Next up into August was a revised version of BIP 151 which is end-to-end -end encryption between Bitcoin nodes by default, which I think is a hugely important thing to actually get out there because without running over Tor, you're effectively open to eavesdropping by your ISP and they can pretty much see every packet of data that's going to and from your Bitcoin node. And that's something that can really be used to de-anonymize um, you know, users by looking at transaction relays because for a, a node to really determine or a, for another Bitcoin node to determine whether you were the like original source of a transaction, they would have to pretty much have your node surrounded and see that it came from there first. Whereas, you know, entities like an ISP, they're pretty much looking at everything. And so somebody like that could actually start tying a, a lot of information together if you're not running over Tor through a VPN or some other kind of encrypted connection beyond uh, what would be built into your node. Right, excuse me, throat is getting dry a little bit. All right, that's <sighs> a lot to cover. It's been a busy year. Mm -hmm. All right, now up to September which was the, uh, the inflation bug incident with uh, <sighs> versions of core between 0.14 and 0.16.2 uh, being vulnerable to a transaction having two of the same input, which would have passed validation and actually resulted in illegal coin supply uh, inflation. And that was a bit of a shit show uh, given an altcoin developer who publicly just blasted what was actually going on in this bug after he ran the patch for his uh, the Qtum client that he was uh, maintaining and pretty much turned what was a very low-key patch without really disclosing the nature of the bug into having to publicly acknowledge the severity of the bug and get everybody upgrading as fast as possible. And I do believe there are a decent number of vulnerable nodes out there, but at this point, all of the major businesses and mining pools have upgraded. So it would really take a, a lot of money and effort at this point to try and exploit it and wouldn't really get anywhere except maybe being able to trick some unupgraded nodes for a block or two before a 
the, the legitimate chain actually overtook that. And in October, we had the fifth uh, Scaling Bitcoin conference, which I'm sure most of you remember my opinions on was mostly a bunch of pointless circle jerking. Uh, one instance of proposing a network attack and framing it as a mechanism for upgrading. Although there were a few interesting talks, uh, the two that jump out immediately at me were Roast Beef's coverage of some of the long-term issues with channel factories and his ideas on how to solve them. And then a proposal called State Chains, which was kind of an interesting hybrid of like a quasi-federated uh, sidechain kind of system that was also in a way compatible with Lightning Network. And those are two things, if you haven't actually looked at any of the content from that conference, I would highly recommend going back and watching. Uh, one, just as kind of a really long-term look at where the Lightning Network is going over the next 10 or so years. And the other, just like a really interesting kind of unique idea with its own trust model and trade-offs. And then November, two months to go. Uh, November was the month of discussion over the 1.1 uh, Lightning Protocol specification. And so two of the big issues here were looking at multi-path payments or AMP. Uh, which earlier in the year roast beef uh, came up with a more private uh, mechanism for, and then splicing, which would allow a user to either add or remove funds from a channel without actually completely closing it so that the remaining balance could actually be used in the interim while the splice was confirmed on the main network. And so this was really a huge step forward in actually getting these things specified so that different developers can start building them out in a, in a compatible way. And then December, pretty much uh, the big news from here was the uh, mini sketch proposal uh, that we covered recently, looking at making um, set reconciliation work towards a more efficient relay of mempool contents to save a very large amount of bandwidth for nodes that could either be used to connect to more peers or just wind up uh, with a, a net savings in bandwidth. And so really looking at all of this, this year has been a steady nosedive from an all-time high of 20,000 down to around four where we're at now. But you know, I think looking at all of this, everybody can see that there has been absolutely no delay in development or people building things. And I would say a huge increase in the pace. So despite all of the, the short-term noise that adds up to the price, there is a shit ton of work going on to actually make this a scalable value transfer platform and that's not going to stop just because of some noise that might upset short-term traders oh yeah man it's been a uh, an incredible year i mean in the technological advancements as far as like i just 
immediately think about wasabi and the Chamian coin joint and the way that that's, you know, hit out there. And a lot of people are using that. And, uh, you know, the way that we're actually testing these uh, new off-chain governance models on Lightning, you know, on mainnet. And I mean, it's just, uh, you know, for a long time, we sort of hypothesized like, oh, you know, we could do this, we could do that. But we've seen uh, SegWit adoption move forward. I mean, we've seen uh, the hash rate go up. There's just been a bunch of stuff going on this year with uh, not just technological advancements in the protocol, but, you know, within the mining industry and, you know, I mean, it's just been uh, even things like that, uh, like the GUI wallet, uh, Zap, you know, like things like that, where it's like we, we didn't have this stuff uh, last year. And, you know, also just like, uh, you know, things like Satoshi's place, where it's like some interesting things just sort of pop out of the air in the development. And, uh, yeah, it's been an amazing year and I don't see it slowing down at all either. This pace is picking up rapidly and, um, you know, more developers are seeing that this is. This is a proper way to scale this kind of network. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely going to keep going forward. Yeah, and my favorite, I mean, my favorite section of the newsletter, uh, this end review, is actually the conclusion where they say that people often request roadmaps for Bitcoin development, but um, based on what's been happening in the last year, that seems like it would be a hard task because everything is moving a lot faster than pretty much anyone expects like with especially with the lightning network going to mainnet in january and february that was definitely not planned at all and in fact the lightning developers um as we saw with reckless uh were not anticipating that and they kind of got forced into doing that because people were so excited to start testing it um, so yeah, that doesn't, I mean, there is a roadmap in the sense that if you're subscribed to the Bitcoin developer mailing list and you're reading the stuff on GitHub, I mean, that's basically where the roadmap is. That's where the discussion is happening about when changes are going to happen and what changes are going to happen, but it's, it's hard to organize it into, you know, one coherent page, uh, with, you know, precise dates for everything. And maybe the sequence will get mixed up like that. That's really hard to do when not only is everything happening so fast, but you don't have, you know, a company or a foundation that is managing any of that organization. They're not saying we're going to do this on this date. Um, the times where, you know, a date is actually set and kept is is rare. It's like a special event when that happens. So just from now on, you should basically expect that for the majority of things, it's probably going to come sooner than you expect. <laughs> Yeah, it's really great to uh i don't know just yeah see this all this open source development and just sort of like uh throwing this technology out there and sort of letting the market sort of pick and see what uh what's best for what out there and you know yeah it's real hard to try and say like this is the roadmap when there is so much stuff coming on but um you know i think it's uh you know we're learning a lot about uh the way that this whole system works this year it's been pretty interesting that CVE and the way that the community responded quick to that. And you kind of see a little bit more of the response system and yeah, these 51% attacks on lower value networks and just sort of the game theory of it all. There's been a lot learned this, this, uh, this year, except it is still a bunch of people trying to grab metrics and say, well, this says that, and that says this, it's 
there's a lot of people saying a lot of things and it's hard to come to a consensus but we'll uh we'll keep watching the development the market will decide mm -hmm. all righty then i guess into the next one so I am betting that there are a lot of Litecoiners losing their shit. Uh, so a while ago, <laughs> yeah. so uh, a while ago, um, back in May, uh, uh, Corne uh, Ploy, um, I that that can't be right, but um, this gentleman posted on the lightning mailing list a worry that he had about uh, people making payments uh, through different base networks using the lightning network, creating an issue where somebody might just delay a transaction to kind of speculate on changing prices between different cryptocurrencies. And really the two solutions that he had to that i don't think address the issue and the first was to kind of have a a latency based monitoring for payments that take forever to confirm and build a reputation system in order to blacklist people who abuse this to speculate on price and the issue there is the whole system is synonymous. So I could just create one reputation and make good payments and then burn it on a speculation while setting up another one making payments and burn it on speculation and so on and so on. And there would really be no way to kind of prevent that because I can just spin up a new reputation like that. And the second potential issue is that you would put somebody else in charge of actually confirming the payment. And so that brings up its own issues of, well, some degree of trust being required and reputation to have third parties facilitating this. And that kind of destroys the whole notion of a trustless payment across different networks with Lightning. Well, recently, uh, somebody who responded to the initial thread in May kind of broke down a little more articulately and in depth why he thinks that this is just not a solvable problem. And it's effectively that when you set yourself up on, in this example, the Bitcoin side and the Litecoin side, and then route from Bitcoin to Litecoin through a Lightning node that handles both networks, what you're doing is pretty much making a call option. And so a, a call, an, or an American call option, which is kind of a trading contract where you buy the right, but not the obligation to purchase something at a certain price. And the way that these are generally constructed in markets is you pay a premium for this contract. So you pony up some amount of money that you pay no matter what, whether you actually exercise the option to purchase the goods. 
And if you back out, the seller of the contract keeps that premium. And if not, then you pay at the agreed upon price before the expiration of the contract. Well, the issue with this dynamic across multiple chains on Lightning Network is it's free. Like there is no premium. Like setting up that, that HTLC across both chains costs you nothing. And so you can set that up. If the price of Litecoin goes up against Bitcoin, then you finish the payment and sell the Litecoin at a profit. If it doesn't, then you just let it fail and it costs you absolutely nothing. And so the whole dynamic here is that all of these nodes that would bridge Bitcoin and Litecoin or whatever other network would have all of their liquidity constantly eaten up by people doing this because it costs nothing. And really his like notions of how to solve this just completely don't solve this at all. And like the first one is to have a failed lightning payment cost money. Well, that just breaks the lightning network completely. Like the whole reason that routing can be dealt with is because a payment failure is free. It costs nothing. If that payment fails, you try another route, you try another until it goes through. Like failing doesn't cost you money. So if you try to introduce a cost there, you pretty much break lightning for payments. The second idea would be to have these nodes increase their fees. But all this does is make a wider spread. So you could still do this. It would just have to be a higher uh, price increase to make it worth redeeming the contract. And to boot, that makes it more expensive to transact from Bitcoin across to Litecoin. So you're disincentivizing that as well. The, the second or the, the third issue would be to limit the length of a time lock for any asset that uh, or transaction that crosses assets. But that introduces weird centralization issues because when I start making a payment, my time lock is the longest. The next hop is slightly shorter, slightly shorter. And so the more you limit that time lock, the more you're going to centralize payments across networks because it can only do so many hops before it, it can't work. And so ultimately, this pretty much just makes it completely not viable to have a lightning network that facilitates payments across different crypto networks. Like just the economic incentives here break it because all of that liquidity would just get eaten up by people speculating on a free call option that costs them absolutely nothing if they don't redeem it. And like it's this is just like I don't see any way to deal with this. Like this is just unless a whole fundamentally new idea to address this is created or i am missing something beyond fundamental this just isn't going to happen 
like Lightning Network needs to function on a single network, a single asset. And with this issue, the, the entire meme of Lightning Network letting all kinds of different cryptocurrencies seamlessly facilitate payments across each other is just not going to happen. Yeah, you know, uh, this year we're learning a lot about following uh, Bitcoin development, you know, the way that it goes and you just sort of port over what Bitcoin's doing and, you know, grab it and say, hey, we're doing that too. And because, you know, last year, Litecoin sort of uh, everybody was saying Litecoin led the way in SegWit. And I mean, that's not incorrect. I mean, you know, they sort of grabbed it and ran with it and then, you know, sort of just gobbling up everything that Bitcoin does to try and keep that test net meme or silver to gold meme. But, you know, Vertcoin was doing that to Litecoin. Everything that Litecoin did, Vertcoin did. And we're seeing now that, uh, you know, that the hash rate fell, that, um, you know, these lower value networks are really at risk, you know, following Bitcoin development that, uh, you know, when things times get tight around Bitcoin mining, you might see a lot of, uh, I don't know, some uh, unexpected activity on your network that could result in basically just your entire value proposition sort of following out from underneath you. I mean, blacklist and payment costs, failed payment costs on Lightning Network. I mean, yeah, where what's the point in there now? And I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, all this off-chain governance and uh, governance models that are built out from, uh, you know, developments being made now. I mean, you know, you could follow in the footsteps of this stuff, but yeah, you're going to be feeling the pain whenever uh, times get tight. And, um, you know, especially, I mean, I've heard some, uh, a lot of, uh, a lot of different things about, you know, the way that atomic swaps could actually hurt these other networks as far as just like a quick way to route liquidity into Bitcoin and, you know, those networks could fail quickly. I mean, it's with risk. And I mean, uh, you know, they, uh, uh, nobody really wants to talk about that risk. And, uh, you know, it's, yeah, it's things like this and observations like this that really kind of expose it. And, uh, you know, similarly with those 51% attacks on uh, Bitcoin and Gold and, I mean, this is where it is kind of like a, uh, you always hindsight 2020 looking back. I mean, we kind of, you know, could hypothesize and everything, but until it's actually on mainnet and happening, I mean, then you really, really start to see the problems and people start to get hurt. I mean, I know there's a lot of uh, Litecoin bag holders out there. Like I said, it was a powerful meme last year and a lot of people jumped in on it. I'm not going to lie. I was kind of part of that whole like, hey, Litecoin needs to lead the way on UASF and we need to figure out how this is going to play out. And I mean, uh, you know, at the time it was something that was a very important like computer science game theory, the way it was going to play out. And uh, even still, it played out different on Bitcoin. I mean, because Litecoin has got just a different consensus model. I mean, they've got a creator and he's here and he'll talk. And so it's kind of easy to get to the table and yeah, hindsight's twenty twenty, and I know some people are holding bags, and uh, you know, yeah, I mean, uh, some of it's just like a harsh reality, and you know, just uh, take it as a lesson learned, and you know, keep moving forward. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's like there, there's, there needs to be more than a meme 
<laughs> when when you start trying to absorb value into something, and you know things just don't always work out the way the meme wants it to, and I mean it's like the entire narrative of all of these shit coins that try to just be like we're not competing with Bitcoin, we're just trying to help it. It's like it's nonsense. It is complete and utter nonsense. And I mean, there there are a million other reasons why just this kind of use of Lightning Network won't work. This is just the most recent one, and I think one that's just airtight and stands solid on its own. But this is absolutely not the only thing that's going to stop Lightning across Bitcoin and Litecoin from allowing Litecoin to be the air quote payments coin. Like it's it's gibberish. And like you need to just step back, especially when you're investing money in a space like this, and actually look at reality, data, and logic. Like if you just go investing based on memes, you're going to have a bad time. That's a that's a great way to put it. I uh I saw Roger Veer put out a new video and it was like him with an Excel spreadsheet, the lightning network off chain scaling and on chain scaling. And, you know, he was like going through the statistics, trying to like prove to you like how this is better than that. And uh, it's, uh, you know, yeah, just uh, watch out. The memes can hurt you. <laughs> so, uh Moving on, right? I mean, uh, Janine, did you have anything to say about this uh, Litecoin atomic swap issue? Um, not really. No, it's just, uh, yeah, um, the whole Litecoin silver to Bitcoin's gold. I mean, that's like, I'm I'm one of those people that, you know, I'm not too bothered by the presence of all coins because I just, my response is just let the market settle out oh, it doesn't really bother me unless there's like blatant fraud happening or people's money is getting stolen um so yeah i that's that's really all don't have much comment um i do find it interesting though regarding just the co-op stuff um that yeah i think people just assume oh you can just switch the coins and that's it but it's not all it's not just that there's all kinds of economic consequences that we haven't really gotten into because i mean sure we've tested atomic swaps with light or with litecoin but there's still a lot of things that could possibly go wrong and um or the economic incentives could be off uh which doesn't surprise me because like this is it's it's a big deal to try and you know make a trustless or make find a way to do a trustless exchange without an exchange that's a big deal that's never really happened before outside of obviously you know direct um paper currency or metal coin currency swaps oh yeah and let me just say real quick before you move on rick like i'm not saying that this is going to prevent like exchanging between different assets atomically I'm saying that this is going to completely kill the the notion that like I can pay in Bitcoin and you receive Litecoin as a merchant. Like the the liquidity won't be there. The ways to try and deal with this are going to add like disproportionate fees to that. Like it won't make sense. 
but like you can definitely swap assets in a trade but like seamlessly paying across multiple networks i think this completely kills that now honestly that trustless swap in a trade that's kind of where i've heard this theory about you could drain a coin very quickly where somebody can just like yeah you know they could just move seamlessly from litecoin to bitcoin so how would that not you know make it a uh, spiral out quicker but yeah, like, uh, let's just uh, keep moving forward in these uh, memes and coins. And, uh, you know, there's a real powerful meme that we talk about here regularly. And that is, you know, Bitcoin does help promote freedom from tyranny. So, all right, guys, I'm sure you saw it on Twitter or Slack. The mainstream media, at least, uh, or at least uh, Alex Glads Gladstein, Gladstein of Time Magazine, to be more precise, wrote a very well articulated piece on how Bitcoin promotes freedom and offers a way from offers a way out from authoritarian regimes. Sorry, I've been kind of struggling with that word all morning. So uh, this is a subject we've talked about extensively here on the digest. When we cover those stories like the Blockstream satellite and Bitcoin privacy enhancements, like with Wasabi and Samurai, those are things we get excited about because it helps promote the censorship resistant resistance of the network to help these people in, uh, you know, dire straits. So when we uh, discuss new laws and regulations on top of the geopolitics and macroeconomics, it's because we know this is a fight for freedom and liberty. Like uh, Andrea said, uh, governments aren't putting Bitcoin to the test. Bitcoin is putting governments to the test. And uh, so it's something I was excited to see being uh, pumped out there on Twitter, because a lot of times the majority of the crowd Kind of gets lost in uh, what exactly Bitcoin is. Bitcoin is a stock, or it's all about fundraising. Time has a Time has a wide range of publication. Oh yeah, Time Magazine has a wide range of publication, and I think it's a good thing when more people get the word that this technology is more about more than just making money. It's about helping people protect their value with a new form of money. I saw a. Uh, Local friend, I'd never expect to tweet this out, uh, push out the tweet with this link. And um, I've heard some say on YouTube, oh, well, we all know this. It's nothing new. Why does this get this much attention? And actually, there are a lot of people who don't understand this fact. And uh, people who work in blockchain that I know, I mean, they've got their heads down and they're working on engineering problems and uh, in other areas of the space. And, you know, they have different experiences to us and uh you know this yeah i don't really even know that this is a, even a problem through their perspective as far as like why money needs to be censorship resistance and inflation and how that could hurt someone um so now alex of this uh the pub, the guy writing this mainly talked about venezuelan citizens using bitcoin to help escape the tyranny of their currency being inflated like crazy at the will of uh, Maduro. We all know about that. We've been covering it extensively. He also touches on uh, how this helps these uh, people in Zimbabwe going through a similar issue with a tyrannical leader and uh, an inflating currency. Uh, Russia from freezing bank accounts. China from state surveillance. And uh, he also covers how currencies like the Petro could be used to put an even greater Orwellian boot on the throat of its citizens because that situation gives ultimate control of the network to the regime. Then he touches on new tech coming out to even further help Bitcoin achieve its goal of becoming 
uh, global global censorship resistant money of choice with advancements in privacy and second layers like the Lightning Network. Overall, I thought it was a it was great in its simplicity to uh, convey this message of how Bitcoin helps enable liberty from tyranny. I mean, it wasn't a very long article. People could read it relatively quickly. And uh, that's a hard thing to uh, make economically your words uh, get the message across. And uh, so, yeah, it was really good to see and uh, speaking from experience as far as trying to get that message across. I mean, to, you know, at individuals of the meetups, it's like you can very easily get sidetracked or lost in your thought. And so, you know, I, it's good to see a very well articulated short article that sort of just puts that out there as what we're trying to do here. And uh yeah, so we've got some stats from this other article about how uh, local Bitcoin's volume has been exploding recently in uh, Venezuela. It saw a jump of 11% from one that from just over 1,700 Bitcoin the week of December 15th to uh, over 1,900, coming close to 2,000 Bitcoin the week of December 22nd, which is the highest ever recorded activity on local Bitcoins. And the article talks about what's encouraging that growth, saying, quote, the IMF reported back in July that the Latin American country was on track to hit an inflation level of one million percent by the close of this month. One million. <laughs> to give you some context, inflation in the U.S. is 2.2 percent and recent Federal Reserve hikes caused a severe round of backlash from business. Even President Trump saying that the Fed has, quote, gone crazy. And that's at a 2% interest rate, and these guys are going up a million percent. So then uh, director of the Western Hemisphere Department of International Monetary Fund, Alejandro Werner says, quote, if you thought 1 million percent was out of control, that figure could reach as much as 10 million by the end of 2019. So while these uh, tumultuous times are moving forward, at least we know there is Bitcoin by people's side to help offer an escape from these tyrannies. And uh, we just have to keep working on what we are doing, spreading the word and educating people and helping people come to understand the technology and onboarding people in a meaningful way to where they could come to trust the network. And, uh, you know, I just uh, yeah, I was just really excited and jazzed about this article. This is one of those things where um, it's hard to uh, basically just boil it down and say Bitcoin means freedom and uh, what exactly that that entails. And uh, so. I was uh, I was excited to see it. Like I said, I saw somebody from here in town, like a you know pretty prominent developer on other networks, uh, tweeting out about it. And um, you know, it's just been good to kind of see you know here towards the end of this year and everything that's happened this year. I've seen personally um, developers kind of come to this understanding that there's something more going on than just like some interesting computer science engineering. And that, uh, you know, that this can help enable people um, in a way that we haven't had the ability to in the past. So I was super excited to see it and, uh, you know, read it and just sort of boil it down and just be like, well, you know, this is like I'm saying, it's articulated really well. But uh, did you guys read the article or did you catch some of it on Twitter? Uh, I know that it was, uh, like I said, it's being pumped out there a lot. Did you uh, did you catch it? No, I didn't actually have a chance to read it, but it is kind of interesting given the timing of the whole Patreon MasterCard shit. And 
all of the people in the so-called intellectual dark web starting to look at cryptocurrencies and alternatives that something like this is published in a place like time like it seems like it's perfect timing to start dragging people's minds in the right direction that's certainly an interesting theory i didn't even think about that but you're right i mean there's definitely been some you know background commotion about how exactly to uh route around that sort of problem. And uh, like I'm just saying, I mean, we kind of have to keep our head down and educating people to where they do understand it. And Time Magazine does have a wide reach. So that is pretty interesting timing. Um, but like we're saying, I mean, this is kind of uh, what we understand. And, you know, one of the main reasons why I think we're doing what we're doing. And uh, so it's good to see that message spread pretty wide and far. And uh, to a lot of people that, you know, could quickly digest what exactly that means because uh you know there's a lot of people that they look at it and they kind of get lost down another rabbit hole or a tangent and you know they don't really come to that understanding and you know it takes a while for people to keep coming back to get that so hopefully uh you know it did grab a wide audience and a lot of people did uh you know grasp a new meaning on what bitcoin could be so uh yeah but that's what uh that's the powerful Bitcoin meme is uh, Bitcoin is freedom, liberty from tyranny. Any input, Janine? No, sure. but we may shortly have uh, someone joining us. <laughs> Woo! Special guest, maybe. Uh oh, gonna have to wait on that one. But uh, what else has been going on this morning? I know that uh, you grabbed something going on with uh, maybe a big tweet storm. Yeah. Um, so many of you have probably seen the very long thread from Tour de Meester. Uh, and when I say very long, I mean uh, 50 tweets long. He actually numbered them. Um, and he basically did this Twitter uh, list of criticisms about Ethereum's architecture, economics, and marketing strategy, uh, mostly. And at a number of points, he not only references prior research that he has done over the years um, to back up those criticisms, but he also references uh, tweets which showed that he himself used to be excited about, about you know, the possibilities of Ethereum that he believed would come to fruition. Uh, in the third that I followed it. Ethereum since 2014 and feel a responsibility to share my concerns. And then later in tweets uh, 44 and 45, he says, do I have a conflict of interest? ETH is a publicly available asset with no real barriers to entry, so I could easily get a stake. Also, having met Vitalik and other Ethereum founders several times in uh, 2013 and 14, it would have been doable for me to become part of the in crowd. Actually, I was initially excited about Ethereum's smart contract work. This was one of... Um, before one of its many pivots. Um, and things which concerned him ultimately ended in a change of heart from optimism to more skepticism, uh, which included uh, the circumstances of the Ethereum token launch and how it could be easily classified as a securities offering despite that being given a pass by the SEC, the litany of as of yet undelivered promises about various roadmap and scaling expectations, especially with the Casper and sharding upgrades, uh, they're constant claiming that proof of work is environmentally unfriendly or that proof of stake can guarantee as much immutability as proof of work. 
various people, including Vitalik, failing to give proper credit for prior art, um, a uh, a perception that they have poorer peer review standards than especially Bitcoin. Various people, including Vitalik, supporting various perpetual income or basic income schemes or like an inflation tax. Uh, and somehow he also, I guess, claimed that that would have no effect um, on users or the price. Uh, also perpetuating the idea that blockchains can be used as storage mechanisms for large amounts of data without that activity encouraging, um, incurring higher fees or leading to massive scaling issues and relatedly making it almost impossible for the average person to run an Ethereum full node anymore um, to the point where most of the network is now relying on hosted node services like Infura. Uh, Vitalik's meeting with the Russian government and agreeing to work with a separate but related Ethereum Russia research organization, which they have stated will be independent from the Ethereum Foundation, but obviously it came with Vitalik's approval due to these meetings. Uh, core developers making vital roadmap decisions within closed or semi-closed meetings. And uh, a big one was their role in the ICO slash token scam boom of 2017. And so that was just a summary of many of his points. Uh, we've talked about several of them and more a number of times on Block Digest uh, over the past 150 episodes. Um, I don't think it's a surprise that <laughs> to any of our viewers that uh, I don't anyone here is not really a fan of Ethereum. And um, I will say just individually that I probably didn't have as much interest as Tour did in Ethereum leading up to and after the launch. But I also myself had a much more optimistic view of Ethereum in 2015 and even 2016. I'm pretty sure I even used to retweet some of their development reports in 2015, but I can't precisely remember. <laughs> um, but it didn't really take that long for me to see that uh, a lot of these red flags that he pointed out, including some other ones, uh, especially the, <laughs> the prominent role that people I'm really not a fan of at all had in the community. Um, but regardless, if you read through Tour's thread, there are obviously, um, there's obviously mentions of specific prominent people like Vitalik, but none of his tweets hacking any individual in Ethereum on any personal level. But for some reason, a woman named Prethi uh, Cassaretti, I think that's how you pronounce her name, uh, she previously worked at both Goldman Sachs and Coinbase, but now she runs, um, I believe it's a tokenized forum for um verifying claims or disputing claims and i have to check the name of it uh true story uh t-r-u story and so she decided to kind of make a snarky tweet in response to tours thread which as i said didn't personally you know target anyone in particular uh let me pull it up really quick don't have it on my screen, but it should be somewhere here. I have to I have to scroll through all of the spam tweets that she made about 24 hours ago where she was sharing this thread. Um, so she responded to tour the start of tours um, thread by saying, Hi, I'm a self-labeled Bitcoin maximalist and my sole job consists of reading crypto Twitter slash Reddit all day and then drafting tweet storms attacking non-Bitcoin people, but never really doing anything useful myself. Oh, and I own a lot of Bitcoin. And people got pretty upset about this take that she had, especially her claim that he doesn't do anything useful 
um when i mean part of the reason that his thread got so popular is because he was citing research and points that he had you know curated over the years um and people found that useful and she decided instead of rebutting him directly i haven't actually seen I, they might have blocked each other she might have blocked him i assume she blocked him um but she decided to bring the thread onto her trait uh, when you click on it, it brings you to a page where it gives you like a ch chain of that she listed. Um, and it gives you the option to reply to the claim, list the source. And I don't know if this is how all of the, the little uh, boxes work, but she has a, a source, an argument, evidence um area and then status like is it is the claim true i assume that's what it's for and that has not been determined i think for any of them but when you look at like for example the one that i noticed in particular was the claim about bitcoin's lightning network is now live and growing at a rapid clip uh and the replies to that um saying that they disagreed um one of them was something like the, the Lightning Network is active, but Elizabeth Stark says it's just early beta software. And it's like, I'm sorry, what does it being classified as early beta software, what, how does that dispute whether it's active and growing? Um, presumably, if it's in beta, that means it was an alpha, barely existing a year ago. That seems to be growing uh, in my view. But apparently that's the it's you know, that's what's hard about uh, it's one of the criticisms I've had about using blockchains for journalism is that people think, oh, blockchains are this truth machine. So if you just put it into the blockchain, that makes it true. And it's like, no, the reason the blockchain works is because there is a very specific and limited set of things that nodes are verifying in the network. And if you know, <laughs> you can't easily verify these kinds of social claims like this because it requires you know, like it's not something that we've built computers to understand which is you know human language and being able to verify that that's something that humans still do to a large degree um and i think some of the refutations that she has or people have listed so far are not that good and a lot of the claims that he made they just dismiss them as not even being worthy of refuting because they say their opinions uh with no evidence which i think is just like a soft way of like okay we're not going to address this at all all right chris, pretty upset with that yeah chris you um, beautiful british man you you say hi before i start ranting because because I'm, I'm gonna probably take a bit <laughs> hi 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 everybody i don't, i always said that ethereum it's a long investment you know you've got to stick with it and i think we're going to learn who the real holders are hodlers in the upcoming dump in the bear market and i think we need to get rid of the tourists but yeah very bullish on ethereum long term says an insider what <laughs> no that's completely right i've always been trashing it but look i'm not the sort of person that likes to say i told you so well, that's actually a lie. I love I love saying I told you so. You can look at all the various videos that I've been making over the years. Go back to World Crypto Network. Look at what I was saying. And um, yeah, I think it's a scam. I don't think the world needs a Turing complete distributed computer. I think that's pretty dangerous. 
So what, what do you want me to say? I've said it all before. It's just old. Anyone watching this is going to go, yeah, I've heard all this. What's all right. Then I'll, I'll, let me insult the dits who is making these statements then. So a little backstory on Miss Preeti. Uh, she was a VC uh, employee who took a six-month JavaScript boot camp and then started helping build systems at Coinbase. Uh, and then left to build this completely broken platform uh, that, that air quote fact checks. Um, those systems are broken and they don't work. Like period. Like when, when you have somebody fact check something, you're looking at their authority and you're waiting that to see whether or not their their input matters. And the thing is, when you when you put the economic incentive in in something like that, they're just going to tell people what they want to hear because a bunch of people agreeing with them reinforces their authority, and then they can just say more things that'll be perceived as true. So, like th this lady is a complete ditz, and Tur is no angel, which is why I haven't been defending him at all. But that thread was the truth. Yeah, some uh, harsh truth that's harsh to deal with, right? I mean, like, I kind of, uh, like you're saying, there's a financial incentive there. And like, um, yeah, she just took it like way over the harsh end saying that I'm a self-proclaimed Bitcoin maximalist. I'll just say this right now. Like, I put Bitcoin maximalist on my Twitter handle recently. And that wasn't like me self-proclaiming. It's because everybody says that's what I am. And I know that happens to Tura too. Where it's just like, if you have these opinions, these other people are going to say, oh, you're a maximalist. He's of the maximalist perspective. It's it's not like self-labeling. It's been thrown at us so much to where it's like, all right, might as well just accept it and move forward. But yeah, peer review is harsh. And, um, you know, especially whenever it's like digging down into techn technicalities of what you're trying to achieve and how, how uh, you know, how exactly can that be achieved and... Um, you know, there's a lot of questions there with Ethereum. And I mean, like, there is a difference between, you know, 2015 now. It's like, you know, there's really no hiding from it anymore. I mean, like, there was a bunch of attention that came towards Stop and Decrypt's Medium post whenever he wrote about um, how these Ethereum nodes were getting too large and you couldn't even sync up anymore. And that was a bunch of uh, discussion within the Ethereum development community. And I saw it here on the ground where people were taking that and they were saying they were digesting it and saying, you know, this is a problem and this is something that we should talk about. And, uh, you know, that's just harsh realities of what you're trying to achieve here in computer science and live fire economics and game theory and the way that these uh, blockchains work. And so, yeah, it's like the realities are in front of you. I mean, like you're like you're saying, uh, Janine, like with the most of the nodes being like reliant on Infura and you know this whole long-weighted casper is just thrown to the side and now it's a uh, proof of stake or bust and uh you know they've got channel states and and you know plasma and all these different things but it's nobody knows how exactly that's going to go and i mean like we've seen the problems that have escalated to this point so it's just uh you know maybe now the peer review is just like it's just blaring there's a problem there and um, the only thing they can do is shout it down or confuse the language through, uh, you know, 
trying to say a lot of this just like creating definitions and creating their own words or using words similar and so it's a yeah it's a different time and uh it's kind of like make or break here for ethereum in the next uh year or two but you know we'll see i mean maybe it will be that long-term you know that long-term investment what's that there chris I, yeah, what's, uh, well what what this this oh what's this this is the and thread for ethereum welcome to the beginning by one vitalik buterin in january 2014 and he tells us that the last five years have plainly demonstrated a missing feature a sufficiently powerful turing complete scripting language which apparently was much needed was, is that true strictly speaking is that what we were needing and and correct me if i'm wrong Shinobi, but those op returns all the different things you could do in in bitcoin were they were they just not written in bitcoin or were they written and disabled what's the story behind that what well, wasn't it, it written and then disabled because it would theoretically allow you or no actually actually allow you to just spend any coins with no signatures <laughs> yeah yeah it's unsafe it's unsafe at any speed and the thing is that when you do when you hang around in the startup space a lot and you you sort of meet all these kind of self i call them self-unemployed middle-class people right um who kind of you know they're struggling to get along they've been made redundant companies like google and facebook are automating away a lot of the decision making processes and now the ai industry is making a lot of headway and probably you know five to ten years out i'm just making up numbers we'll probably be looking at a world where most of the world is run by ai most of the decision making in governments and most of the decision making within companies to the point where you're only going to need one or two kind of supervisors within a company and most of it will just be done probabilistically with algorithms right but as a result what you now got is quite a large middle class population in the, in the developed world who all have expectations on living standards they've all been you know living nice lifestyles drinking their frappuccino lattes going out for drinks once or twice a week and you know nobody likes to let go and nobody likes to give up what they what they've got used to the, the kind of quality of living that they've got used to so they kind of have to hustle you know they have to play the game and part of the game is investor story time, where you go to a bunch of people that have got more money than you and you tell them a story about how you're gonna make the numbers in their bank account go up. And you know you kind of have to get them along. And a lot of the time, you know, if you don't have any skills, if you're not actually a developer, one of the things that you can do is you can just start coming up with, you know, solutions to problems that don't exist. And you can come out with a lot of science, and you can you can sort of bamboozle people a lot of technical terms and you can point to things like the the gartner hype cycle for example if you look up gartner g-a-r-t-n-e-r it's a consultancy firm and they every year every august or so they publish um a graph with all the upcoming trends all the new emerging technologies and it doesn't just show the ones that are coming up it shows the ones um that have come and gone it shows the sort of the the peak of expectation the trough of disillusionment and for, for the seasoned serial entrepreneur or the self-unemployed, what you're looking for is stuff that's going up and to the right, that's just reaching the peak of that expectation. And what you want to do is you want to jump onto that meme. You want to jump on that trend. You want to ride it up to the top, and then you want to get your exit. And one of the interesting things that happens within startup culture is that you end up with the greater fool. 
which is you get a bunch of investors to buy into your scam and then they become part of your scam as they slowly come to the realization that there's nothing really going on under the hood that it's really all just window dressing in potomkin and then they need to go sell it off to another group of people and that's kind of what's happened with ethereum you know he came you know vitalik was was actually a bit of a hero uh, in the industry i don't know if anybody remembers but he was um he was a bit of a legend you know he was writing for bitcoin magazine he was one of the first people to start charging for his content um in bitcoins and he would do this wonderful thing where you know he would write half release half the article and then say well in order to get the other half you have to pay me five bitcoins or whatever it was back then and i i really like that i like anybody who demonstrates that there's actually a third way of acquiring bitcoin not just mining and buying but also just earning um and i and i've really been uh, promoting that so I really liked Vitalik, but unfortunately, you know, the temptations were there. The temptation was, look, isn't this frenzy going crazy? Lots of people are throwing money. They're not really thinking it through and they'll throw money at anything. And if you if you kind of can talk, you know, if you're very uh, good with words and you can get up and you can present, it doesn't matter whether there's anything really going on in the back end of your business. You can basically get a bunch of people to buy in. They'll slowly realize that the whole thing is a scam and then they'll go shit now we need to find even greater fools that we can sell it on to and really at the end of the day it was a solution looking for a problem we never really needed this rant done mm -hmm. you wanted to pitch something in janine yeah so greg maxwell uh, was the last person that tour quoted in his thread and it kind of it said the same thing um in different words he said uh i think this is 20, 2016 yeah um all of these radical improvements in scalability privacy and flexibility show up when you realize that turing complete is the wrong tool that what our systems do is verification not computation this cognitive error confers no advantage outside of marketing to people with a fuzzy idea of what smart contracts might be good for in the first place more powerful smart contracting in the world of Bitcoin will absolutely be a thing. I don't doubt it. But the marketing blather around Ethereum isn't power, it's a boat anchor, a vector for consensus and consistency and decentralization, destroying resource exhaustion and incentive mismatches. Fortunately, the cognitive framework I've described here is well understood in the community of Bitcoin experts. Mm -hmm. It's not about computing, it's about validating computing. Yes, sir. So, yeah, what else is going on, man? We got some uh, some wallet issues to get into, huh? Yeah, so these, honestly, uh, this is from the, uh, the uh, brain fart. 35C. The Chaos Computer Club's uh, Hackers Congress. Yes. But, honestly, I think that pretty much all of these exploits have been wildly overblown so um they covered um some exploits for the ledger nano s the ledger blue and then the treasure so i'll just dive into the uh the two nano s exploits first um the first one that they covered was actually just a supply chain attack and so honestly <clears throat> like this isn't really that big of a deal because at this point like if you've compromised the supply chain you can pretty much do whatever you want like everything is open game 
And this exploit is kind of really not that practical. So what, what they did was <clears throat> intercepted the Nano, um, inserted some additional hardware on it to allow the confirmation button to be triggered electronically by a uh, radio frequency. And then the, the idea of it was to have malware on the victim's computer that would craft a malicious transaction and be able to trigger the ledger to confirm the transaction for signing uh, by waiting nearby with a radio device. <clears throat> and honestly, like the, the, the level of effort that would have to go into this is just so absurd that at this point, like you would just <laughs> be better off having a completely fabricated device that would just have a broken random number generator or something where it would generate a seed that you could brute force or had a table of and swept the second it had a balance. But one thing I will say though with this attack is it could theoretically be possible to trigger the radio device in a modified ledger without actually waiting in, a, in the next room or something with a radio device. Um, you could potentially modify firmware through an exploit on like a, a GPU or some other device in the computer that would actually be able to generate uh, radio waves powerful enough to be picked up by something very near the computer <clears throat> and therefore like trigger the confirmation button with malware on the actual computer that crafted the transaction. So it's not something you necessarily need to literally be like waiting in the next room to trigger. You could theoretically do this remotely, but it's still <clears throat> just kind of a, a not really practical thing in my mind. You know, like I said, you, you just give them a fake device where it's a seed that you're aware of and can just sweep when they load it. Yeah, so the the one I also I watched about half of it. I didn't see the second half, but even the first half of the presentation was I was ex expecting more. It wasn't as mind-blowing as I was expecting considering the title. Um one of the things I didn't like was that in the introduction they were kind of just giving a brief description of like what is cryptocurrency and how do what are seeds and all of that. And they actually recommended seeds kind of put me off. It's like, okay, you yeah don't do that it is even in the bitcoin wiki as being not a good idea so don't recommend it anymore you can do it like if you're super confident in your ability to like you know manage that and risk the data loss that comes with that practice then that's fine don't recommend it to the average the other thing i i think the only thing that really interested me was i think it was uh it was one of the first exploits they showed where um they they added like a malicious chip or something into I think it was the let yeah it was the ledger um, device, and I think it was able to bypass the firmware verification uh, staff have the interface open. It has you like check to make sure that the firmware is the same firmware that they sent you, and uh, I think it didn't. It for some reason it it recognized that the there was like a problem on Linux. 
But when he switched to a Windows machine, then it was able to bypass that verification. I can't, do you, Shinobi, do you remember what that was? I just thought I remembered it was funny because it didn't work on Linux, but it worked on Windows. I think that was the next one. Um, I'm, I don't recall that involving um, like actually installing hardware on it. But I think what they did is um, there's like a constant value in a memory sector that's um, protected in the ledger for the firmware verification <clears throat> and for the update process, it would yeah. wipe that section of the memory. Then it would load the new firmware and it would only replace that value in the memory if the firmware signature checked out. And they found out that um, another section of the memory was mapped to that protected section. So you could write it somewhere else and it would physically put it in the appropriate memory sector. But they were not able to actually take that because this, this, that was on the MCU, not the actual secure element. And I don't think that they were actually able to get a usable exploit that would get access to keys out of that. I think the closest they were able to do was load malicious firmware that would run and then on the next boot would um, like it would replace it with the legitimate firmware, but I don't think they actually like accomplished a key extraction exploit with it at this time. Yeah, because I definitely want to preface with this that like I mean it's pretty much all of the major vulnerabilities, especially with the Trezor that have been found that have needed to be fixed have all been vulnerabilities where you need physical access to the device. So the fact that this vulnerability requires physical access to the device and extensive physical access to the device, um, that's not only, it's it's not surprising, but it's it fits the general pattern that that's the main that that's the main attack vector in terms of, like the, the the vulnerabilities where you can do like remote attacks are few and far between and really that's what these hardware wallets are best at they're they're good at you know preventing remote um remote access vulnerabilities that um can happen with the device uh whereas physical access that's that's a lot harder to protect against especially you know i mean you have open hardware but like if you're if it's easy to open it and tinker around with it you know the consequence of that is less physical access can tinker around with it but the benefit is that if you if they provide you by that you know just the board looks as it should be or whatever then you should be able to at least be able to open the device yourself and see okay has this device been tampered with and you can't maybe you probably most people don't have the expertise to fully verify that but at least you are able to open it and make sure that there hasn't been any suspicious anything like that Mm -hmm. And then the like ledger blue attack is honestly like the most impractical out of all of them. I think <clears throat> like pretty much what they did is um when you have this the because it's pretty much like a small uh, device with a built-in touch screen, and when you go to touch the screen to input the pin. It actually has like the the light up, the depress animation and things, and that creates electrical activity in the screen that pretty much can get picked up by the USB cable and broadcast for a small distance. <clears throat> and so what they did 
was just keep pressing um, the key in, or the individual numbers over and over and over again <clears throat> and use an AI learning algorithm to get a signature for each key press <clears throat> to be able to use a, a radio <clears throat> detector, excuse me, <clears throat> to um, identify which button was pressed. And therefore they'd be able to kind of eavesdrop and figure out the pin. But the thing is like, you would not only have to be at a very close distance to pick this up, but there are a lot of different variables involved, like the position of the device, the angle and contortion of the USB antenna and all of these different things are gonna change the, the signal that you would pick up. And so I think the, the practicality of this is just not something that could actually be exploited in the real world at all. And honestly, it's a pretty trivial thing to fix, just getting rid of the screen activity when you press a button and potentially randomizing the order of the, the pins. Yeah, and the other part that kind of put me off just in terms of how they handled it is that, uh, I mean, they claim that they notified Ledger about the vulnerabilities or these particular vulnerabilities. Uh, I think they said something like 168 days ago, which what that would be, you know, four months, something like that, four months ago. Um, so they, they say that they notified Ledger. They did not say that they notified Trezor and actually uh, Pavel mention or stick goes by stick he tweeted um that they had not been notified of the vulnerabilities and so they hadn't you know they hadn't put forward a response they were reacting to it i think he was actually there at the conference so it was the first time they were hearing about it um it sounds like in terms of treasure that things ended up going okay though because i guess he reached out to them uh directly at the conference and they talked about it and uh, they'll be fixing that. The vulnerabilities are, um, you know, trying to find ways to make this less of a big deal in January. So I guess on Trezor's end, it went okay. Um, I don't know about Ledger if it's true that they notified them. I mean, that's kind of expected. If a lot of a lot of companies, um, when they receive, you know, these reports, it's, uh, you know, catching. Or it's a very hit and miss in terms of whether they actually evaluate them as being, you know, serious or whatever and how they respond. So I don't know about that. But yeah, I'm generally not in favor of people who are like, oh, we found a vulnerability and we're going to make a bunch of press about it by talking about it at a conference and not, not even trying to reach out to one or possibly both, if they're not telling the truth about that, uh, companies about the findings, because pretty much, uh, I mean, most of the talks I see at CCC, uh, they preface either at the end or beginning of their presentation that they've made, you know, the affected parties aware, and that the, like, a lot of times they will say, like, these have already been patched, like, they're not live um, vulnerabilities anymore. We just want to present our research and how we found them, and maybe this might be a problem in other systems that are similar. Uh, but pretty much a lot of people at CCC always make an effort to reach out to the companies involved, and I guess that kind of happened or didn't really happen in this case, and that's always a bit disappointing. Mm -hmm. 
So uh, Chris still AWOL to or can he jump in on the ledger blue before we move along? Yeah, he's AWOL at the moment. <laughs> well, I mean, like maybe come in on this. I was just gonna comment on this, like how you know, security is like something that's very hard to get the right level of what is ease of access and still secure from an attacker. And, uh, you know, it's really hard to actually get that right. And um, I mean, like we could develop the most, you know, top secret, top of the line bunker. And there's going to be some, you know, specialist group that could figure out a way to get inside that bunker or a way to compromise it. And uh, it's very hard to, um, yeah, have that touch where it's just like, uh, you know, enough security to where an attacker can't feasibly get into your wallet and take your Bitcoin and still give you the ease of use of using the wallet. And uh, that's really hard to achieve. And so I could understand how some of these things where it's like, you know, the supply chain hack ones in particular, like that's just an obvious like if, uh, you know, way back when Tracer was first coming out, I remember it was still back then they were saying, you know, do not buy it off Amazon. Do not buy it off Amazon because you don't know what exactly has happened to that chip. And so, I mean, way back then it was order it through Satoshi Labs. I mean, there's even your own steps in the process, you know, that can affect your security. I mean, if you are very lax on the understandings of this and you don't really look and investigate it that well and you just buy one off of Amazon, then guess what? There's probably a supply chain hack there in the middle to where your hardware wallet is not going to be as secure as you'd like it to be. And uh, yeah, there's always specialists that are going to really dig into what you've built and try and crack a way through it. And that's just, it's really hard to keep, uh, you know, that security at the right level to where people have access and it's on their, on their decision and uh, attacker can't get into it. That's a, uh, it's very hard to achieve that. And uh, I think they've done a very good job about it so far. All right, Chris, you had something to say on the, the blue and the, the radio analysis? Yeah, I think you have to be quite a high value target in order for that to be viable. But speaking more generally, I wouldn't trust any of these hardware wallet companies. I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I mean, I, I think that you re really all you can do is try to estimate what kind of value you are to a potential adversary and then estimate how much you're willing to spend in terms of time, money, and energy in protecting your assets. Because there are trade-offs, Johnny mentioned, whether it's opened, whether it's kind of open design, whether you can take it apart, see, see what's inside. There's a trade-off there about whether or not you want openness as a company that's producing this kind of hardware security so that your customers can know that you are being faithful and, and sincere. And then there's a trade-off with, but if it's too open, then also an adversary can see it. And that's a concept known as the enemy knows the system. It's one of uh, Shannon's maxims. And the, the problem is that for, for a lot of people, the, there's too much of an educational hurdle for them to get over for setting up some kind of paper walleting system or some kind of air-gapped um, laptop, which at the moment still is the most secure way to store your crypto assets that I can think of unless you've got a Janine's kind of covering her face, we're in the same room together. So say what you think. Um, I mean, I would, I would disagree on the point that using just a regular laptop is a better option 
for the average person because the average person's laptop is going to, is much more likely to be insecure, containing malware, um, things like that, than one of these hardware the d- devices if they buy it directly from the vendor. Like the the yeah, as Rick says, the attack surface of the attack surface of any laptop or smartphone device is much like there. There's kind of a scale of things. The attack surface of a laptop is bigger than a smartphone, and the attack surface of a smartphone is bigger than a hardware device. So, in general, the hardware uh, like for significant amounts. Um, I, I don't know what it depends on how you would scale that up in terms of what amount it's worth um, for buying a hardware wallet. But at a significant amount of money, you should be using a hardware wallet because the the trade-off you make in terms of using instead a laptop that is much more likely to have problems with it is much more likely to have software that you can't verify software that you don't know how it how exactly it's running is much higher than if you use a hardware wallet. The, the, I mean, the, most of this presentation in particular was about supply chain techs, and I do think that hardware wallet companies should do much more in that area in terms of, like, one of the things they criticized uh, at the beginning of the presentation was the fact that they use like, these security stickers. And, and that's, uh, it. in general, that's just, it doesn't really actually help anything because I stand the concept consequences of using the stick and the pitfalls and what that doesn't actually prove so yeah so i agree pretty much with everything that Jeanine just said so like i said it's that there's a large barrier educational barrier um which means that you can't just pick any laptop so when i said air gaps device i didn't specify which type of device and it's quite right to say that the the security hasn't actually been taken seriously um, in in the tech industry since the beginning and it was never considered a priority and it's only now that we have these digital scarce uh, assets that suddenly we're scrambling and saying actually that the the, the the attack surface is much wider than we thought, and we've got all these really weird supply chains issues that actually come from global economics, like the fact that China pretty much manufactures and controls most of the um, integrated circuits on the planet. And as a result, there are lots of issues with centralization. And as a consumer, you have no idea what you're buying or where it really, really came from. Um, so that's absolutely right. And when I say paper walleting, I don't necessarily literally mean paper. I mean, actually steel, laser etching, any of these kinds of concepts are also equally um, valid. But at the moment, people are not designing. Uh, we don't really have the right tooling um, for this kind of technology right now to be able to produce a secret in an environment that's truly private. Most of the devices in our in our world have network adapters uh, plugged into them, or they have some kind of Bluetooth, or they have some radii um, which allows them to be vulnerable within within a certain radius that they are vulnerable to, to snooping devices. What we haven't rebuilt really is like an old-fashioned Babbage machine, uh, perhaps something that's a bit more compact, where I can actually pull a few levers and, and produce um, you know a set of keys without actually having any electricity involved whatsoever. We haven't really got that kind of tooling, for example. But that is the level that you're going to have to go to if you want to be you know, super paranoid about it all. So in short, back to my original point, I wouldn't trust any of these companies. The first problem that they have to solve is really the supply chain issue. They need to do provenance. They need to be able to, to some degree, give you assurances and you'll never get guarantees. It'll never be 100%. There's no such thing as perfect security, okay? But a chain is only as strong as its weakest link. And whilst they're off building lovely features, 
like you know you've got this distributed trading stuff you've got the shapeshift integration into trezor you've got all these lovely sort of furnishings and this gold plating that's going on in these hardware wallets but no one's really thinking root and branch the weakest link in all of this chain after you've got all of these lovely features the weakest link is the supply chain if you can't even solve that problem which is a hard problem to solve you can't give some kind of meaningful assurance to the customer not a guarantee but a meaningful assurance that this is the device that we sent you this is the basis upon which you made the purchase you go you the reason you buy a ledger is because you are outsourcing the trust to people in your network you're reading reviews online and you're making a decision okay this is the hardware company that i trust not to backdoor the device that's the one job that they've got to do for you is to sell you a safe they're not selling you uh, absolute security they're selling you a safe something you would have in your house that's going to provide a barrier to any thief or anybody any hacker where they're going to have to overcome some serious hurdles so the idea is that unless you are a high value target most hackers thieves whoever your adversary is are going to pick easier targets right but if if they throw away the reward model if they don't care about that reward and they just go right i am on principle just going to target this this user, um, then, no, then nobody can really help you. But I think that the one thing that, that these companies are not doing right now, that their priorities are back to front. They're private companies, so of course their, their legal obligation is to maximize shareholder profit. That means that there's a lot of short-term decision-making around the marketing, uh, you know, overselling themselves, selling themselves as these, these really secure companies, when actually what you're dealing with is, is a knowledge base around hardware security that's so recondite and so so difficult to understand that they can pretty much say whatever they want in, in the public in their marketing and it's very hard to hold them accountable and I, I would like to pay tribute to Salim Rashid um, he's brilliant he's pretty much hacked all these devices now um, he, he gets them he takes them apart he writes up reports on them. good on him um, he's a young guy and that gets said about him too many times but he is a young man and I think what he's done is wonderful because what he's done is as a, as a hardware specialist, as a kind of a, a researcher, right? A security researcher, he spotted an opportunity for himself. He saw these companies coming, he saw the marketing, he saw that the, 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 there were these uh, consumers who, who had a great need and that need was for security. I need to secure my crypto assets. They, he also saw that those consumers didn't have a lot of insight. They didn't have knowledge and that the marketing and all of the incentives that come from running a private company were geared towards overselling the product oversell the products get more consumers to buy your products because you need to show growth to investors so they can get the next round of investors on and he pulled them all apart and he said this is bullshit. your, your devices are secure it's just like it's an android that can get pong working on this snake whatever and that's beautiful it wasn't just him actually there was, there was a number of them uh, particularly in the bitfi saga bitfi was one of these companies they're probably the worst of all of them in terms of the marketing literature and the way that they dealt with it and i i think you know people like that that those are the real entrepreneurs in my opinion people people like that the entrepreneurs of today the ones that i love the most are not the ones working for startups it, it's the ones holding the startups accountable for their bullshit it's the it's the people like in their bedrooms or wherever you are it doesn't matter where you are the point is that you are self-motivated centrifugal it's auto poetic you're, you're just passionate and you care and you're just one of these people that that will just bring down a lot of a lot of these companies those are the entrepreneurs of today the ones that i really love the enthusiasts mm -hmm.
Oh, yeah. All righty. And so I'm going to say one word before we get to the last vulnerability that's going to scare everybody to death. Tempest. Go Google Tempest. <laughs> All right. But uh, the last vulnerability disclosed was for the Trezor 1. And though I don't believe they tested it on the Model T, um, they seemed pretty confident that it would also work on that. But pretty much uh, the quick gist of it was the Trezor actually doesn't use a secure element, unlike the Ledger. And so everything is kind of managed in the flash of the MCU, except it's uh, bit protected so that uh, access to the memory is not allowed. And there's three different levels where no access is allowed, unauthorized, um, full access is given. And then in the middle there, um, some access to things like the, the RAM, the, the debugging and so on. And so what they did is pretty much glitch the device to reset that bit field so that they were able to access the RAM and one of the things they did say in going over this is that the, like, especially considering it doesn't use a secure element, that the design on firmware checking was very solid. Like they were unable to actually, um, you know, get something malicious on there. But what they were able to do after successfully glitching the device, which I think took them almost three months with three different people trying it all over the world, was initiate the firmware update process after they gained the ability to read uh, and dump the contents of the RAM. And what the Trezor does while going through the firm day or firmware update process is it takes your seed and moves it into the RAM. And then it would go through the firmware update, check the validity, and if it's invalid, it would delete everything from RAM. And if it was valid, it would reload everything in the flash memory before, um, you know, clearing the RAM and finalizing the process. And they stopped the process after it had dumped the seed into the RAM and were able to actually dump the contents out there. And so this is by no means like something super trivial to pull off uh, before they actually put the whole process together for people to replicate. And it requires actual control of the device. So unless somebody breaks in and steals your device, like there is no worry whatsoever about remote exploitation of this. But Trezor is going to be looking at uh, how to address this. And if you use passphrases um, to actually generate your addresses, then this really isn't any threat unless they gain access to your passphrase as well, because that's never actually stored permanently in the device. Yeah, man, that's a, that was a big one. I heard a lot of people um, yelling about in uh, the mumble and on Twitter was uh, this, uh, this Electrum attack. And I mean, uh, yeah, it's one of those like uh, just classic man in the middle, just uh, trying to get you to, uh, I guess it, it I mean, like, I'm still kind of like, I need to read up on it. But I mean, I've heard a lot of buzz about it as far as people just, uh, you know, I mean, people trying to say like, oh, this guy's doing it or that guy's doing it. And, uh, you know, this is just like another, yeah, going on from that last story. I mean, security is something where, I mean, you can 
definitely be the weakest link in the chain where if you're not, um, you know, paying attention to everything, it's, uh, you can just give up all your security and, uh, you know, that's where it's, it's really difficult. It is really difficult to stay secure in this environment. So I imagine, you know, these things, uh, they'll continue to crop up and they'll always probably be around people uh, trying to find ways to, uh, steal your coins. Yep. And, you know, compromising hardware isn't the only way to do that. Uh, next story up, uh, a huge Electrum uh, phishing attack that got somewhere around 245 Bitcoins. And ultimately, this is really the result of pretty much just an architectural flaw in Electrum. And so, or, well, not Electrum itself, but the, the protocol that it uses to communicate with uh, Electrum servers. And so what, after you relay a transaction to an Electrum server, the server is capable of sending you an arbitrary uh, warning message. And I, the, I think the logic here was kind of just, you know, something wrong with the server, like things of that nature. But somebody spun up a bunch of fake Electrum servers and used this error message uh, functionality, pretty much uh, pretending to be an Electrum security update and linking people to a malicious binary. And everybody who got this message and downloaded this had all of their coins sweeped. And yeah. Like, I mean, this just kind of goes to show the importance of actually verifying the source of software you're using. And honestly, like, this is a bit of a fuck up in the, just the whole protocol of the client communicating with the server. Like, a server should not be allowed to just send arbitrary messages. It should, you know, be stuck to, here is an error message it will display a static thing to the user and that's it. And I do believe that they've kind of removed this um, in the last update, although I haven't had a chance to really check that out. But, you know, it's the, it's the exact same thing as using hardware. Like any software you use to manage private keys, you should not just be downloading willy-nilly. You should be ensuring it's something that has a lot of public attention and people looking at it and you need to actually take steps to verify that it came from a legitimate source. Like I cannot think of any serious like wallet software I would use that doesn't either have dist or distribution keys for you to check signatures and a, a, a binary hash against or some other kind of authenticated distribution mechanism. And if somebody is trying to get you to download software that doesn't have that, you should not be using it. Yeah, this is the classic man in the middle I was actually talking about. <clears throat> Excuse me. I don't know why I thought that uh, we had already jumped into this story, but there's just been a lot of this, uh, you know, people talking about um, ways to uh, get into your coin supply there and trying to compromise your security. And yeah, I mean, you always have to, that's what like Chris was just saying there. It's just like, it's really hard to stay secure and to have like the knowledge required to know all the little missteps that you could have, you could fall into. And uh, 
certainly somebody just uh, stepping in there with uh, a message is something that you, you know, you become accustomed to. And next thing you know, you've been compromised. And so always mind your P's and Q's, even when you think you're in the most secure environment. I hope everyone watching this understands that this is an adversarial system. This isn't legacy banking, which is also technically an adversarial system, but that's covered up for you by the insurance industry and governments who will bail you out to some tune. All right, so the first hundred thousand pounds or whatever the regulation says are protected. Um, FDIC, I think is the acronym I've heard from the US, FDIC insured and so on. But this is just a financial vehicle. This is a product that insurers and actuaries have examined and they've looked at the base risks and they've examined all the various different threat models because risk is a distributed phenomena. Okay, so <clears throat> it requires planning. <clears throat> it requires a lot of upfront investment for them to really plan around what, what happens in the case of an emergency. Um, so you get some protection from there. But the problem is the world is a very volatile place. And in the developed world, we feel very safe. And when we walk outside, we, we feel safe to be able to go about our daily tasks. But really, that's just an illusion. And um, there are other things that are really going on in the world that are making you feel that safe. Your, your governments, if you're living in the developed country and you're watching this, they've got their fingers on the scales just ever so slightly, just tilted in your favor. So that the odds kind of go like like a casino. The odds favor you just ever so slightly. But the house edge doesn't have to be great. But over time, if you have a slight favor, like a half percent or a one percent favor on every bet, over time that pays you know huge rewards. But with Bitcoin, you really are exposed. You know, it's you versus the universe, and you're going to have a lot of uh, actors out there who don't have your interests at heart, and will actually use you as as a way to to get themselves ahead and so you have to take full responsibility it's a very darwinian process this yeah i wish a lot more people put uh you know a lot of thought into the game theory behind uh bitcoin in the space and in, in general in the way that uh you know it is an adversarial space and just the large amount of ways that you could become attacked and, and compromised and i mean like yeah it definitely is like a false sense of security when you compare the traditional world to this world and you know that sense of security has been going on for a long enough time to where even when you start to become aware of it you you still haven't even thought about all the possible ways that it could come your way mm -hmm. all right and speaking of darwinian uh, nature of things though there's been some uh, rumors circulating around the chinese media that uh Jihan Wu and McCree Zan were going to be stepping down as co-CEOs of Bitmain. <laughs> and when I reached out to for comments, uh, there, there was pretty much no official response or comment from Bitmain. <laughs> so given the, uh, the rumors of a potential 50% of the, the workforce uh, being laid off, all of the trouble going on with the IPO. Uh, if, if this is an accurate rumor and uh, McCree and Jihan end up stepping down as CEOs, I see some very bad news coming for both Bcash, uh, Litecoin, and pretty much anybody else who uh, is on a network that Bitmain has a sizable holding of. Because if they really are restructuring to the point of pulling out both CEOs, I almost guarantee that their crypto holdings are going to be liquidated 
because I mean, there is just that there's really nothing else for them to do. Like they're, the hardware stockpiles they have are obsolete. They're running out of cash or they wouldn't be going through a restructuring like this. And it's just these mountains of shit coins that they're sitting on that uh, any new head would not have any kind of irrational or emotional attachment to. <laughs> hey, man, I mean, uh, you know, that popcorn has been going for so long, man. I think it's still at this point and we're just kind of like waiting for the realities to set in. I mean, like we did that story last episode about over 50%. And I think that uh, since that last episode, we've seen kind of went all the way to 85%, 85% of the staff and co-CEOs stepping down. There's uh, some major restructuring going on there. And uh, at this point, I feel like they're going to be lucky to make it out of it alive, man. It's uh, it really is. It's been a uh, probably a long, slow bleed for uh, Jihan and Bitmain more than anybody else in this space for the past year. Gotta hurt. Mm -hmm. All right, I think I'm gonna just hop along though. You know, we got just really three short stories left to get through, and then we can spend some time shooting the shit. But uh, next up, another popcorn moment. So back in April, uh, Craig Wright filed a motion to dismiss the lawsuit against him by uh, the Kleinman estate <laughs> for uh, shutting down the, the company they had illegally, uh, seizing the intellectual property of that company, and air quote, running away with over a million Bitcoins that probably don't exist. Well, a federal court judge has decided to dismiss Craig's motion to get rid of the suit. He's going to have to sit through this. Uh, so he, he, he has supported the dismissal of the intellectual property claims uh, because the statute of limitations in Florida has been exceeded in that case. But he does think that there is merit to the climate estate's claims of uh, entitlements to at least 300,000 of these Bitcoin that don't exist, as well as any derivative forked assets connected to them uh, since the forking madness from the creation of Bcash last year. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah. Uh, no later than January 10th next year, Craig is going to have to respond to these counts. And uh, this is going to court. <laughs> That's major popcorn. So I just have one question for you guys. Do you think he's going to finally admit that he's not Satoshi and just try to cry he was lying in court? Or do you think he's going to try and keep the bluff going and, and say that... Uh, Kleiman's estate has no claim to these imaginary Bitcoin. I'm going to guess the bluff. He's going to keep going. Yeah, he, he, he'll double down on it. He'll multigale that shit all the way down. Countersuit. <laughs> well, all I know is that next year is going to be lots of popcorn. And uh, next up is a, another lawsuit blurb. So uh, Mark Carpelli's actually sat through a day in court 
regarding the embezzlement charges uh, relating to Mount Gox and has pled not guilty. So I guess we'll get to see in this case how he explains moving uh, around 300, no, 340 million yen uh, from a Mt. Gox account to his personal account and then used it to invest in software companies. So <laughs> let's give a little round of applause for the, the sad man who gave us our first bull run. Or not first bull run, first, first globally notable bull run. And then, All right. and then last up, Jordan Peterson has started accepting Bitcoin donations. And as of right now, he has actually got sitting in his address 0.89 BTC from 137 transactions. And so like we've talked about, I think, for the last two episodes, all, all of this nonsense going on with MasterCard and Patreon and Professor... Uh, Peterson, as well as Dave Rubin, um, somebody who has a new show on YouTube looking to create a Patreon competitor. I think it's going to be very interesting to see really how far down the Bitcoin rabbit hole, as a lot of people have been putting it, that Professor Peterson decides to go. Because, I mean, there is really nothing like just having Bitcoin sent to you to show how painless and simple it really is to onboard into this system. And he has a lot of eyes on him that he could start directing towards Bitcoin as far as a mechanism to deal with what seems to be blowing up into rampant financial censorship based on political ideology. Yeah, and, uh, you know, I just wanted to tack on to that whole discussion about Patreon and, uh, you know, this whole uh, this whole possibility of trying to get Bitcoin in the hands of these guys is, uh, you know, because I've seen some discussion of, like, why is this, you know, so important or pertinent, and, you know, been reading through it and uh, thinking about it. And, I mean, like, uh, for sure, it's not just like, yeah, this guy's got a bunch of eyes on him. It's the fact that this guy has gone up against the Canadian government in a free speech discussion about uh, preferred pronouns. And that's really what got him his whole like, well, I mean, he went on to Joe Rogan and then kind of spoke about it. And then it became this big, big discussion. And, uh, you know, so he's already kind of central to this discussion about, you know, free speech and like, uh, you know, the way that that's, uh, you know, kind of pushed into these like, oh, you can't say this, you can say this, how that's tyrannical on these ideas, the battle of ideas. And, you know, in this whole discussion, I think, uh, you know, when we talk about, you know, free speech and, uh, you know, the right to basically uh, the banking, right to banking and, uh, you know, right to privacy and all these sort of things that uh, Bitcoin is trying to help enable is uh, due process also is like because this whole thing with uh, Sargon of Akkad and everything was just like, and even with the, you know, the info wars, like, oh, it's all blame on Sandy Hook or something. There's still no like due process or like a process where we understand it's all subjective. And, um, you know, that's just where, you know, yeah, if we could get, uh, you know, I know that there is like a, uh, a possible um, Bitcoin platform out there that does uh, that tries to take 
over a what try to build on Patreon's model. I think it's called Bitbacker. I'm, I'm not sure. I need to look that up. But um, I mean, like we really need to just have something that's a good user user interface, a good user experience. Because I mean, if we could get the attention of these people that are already grabbed the attention of Jordan Peterson for what is you know, we're, we're talking about free speech and like, uh, you know, they can kind of make the connection now that, oh, you know, there's this payment processing layer that we did weren't really that aware of. And so if, uh, you know, if we could get those guys onboarded to where their fans have a way to, you know, hand them over donations and they know that they're not going to be censored, I think that would be a huge, like, not just like an onboarding event, but like people that are onboarded and understand that whole Bitcoin is freedom meme before the idea of like Bitcoin is going to make me money mean and everything. So, um, yeah, I, I, I know that I've seen a lot of people like, why is this so important? It's like, well, it's kind of just like this guy's got a nexus of discussion points of like why, uh, you know, between tyranny and liberty already as far as like, uh, you know, rights that were afforded in uh, Western countries and how uh, they're being degraded. And so, you know, whenever these people see an answer, uh, when they're already aware of the problem, that could be huge in the people that are onboarded and the way that they uh, they see the network. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's really like, you know, I've been screaming this for like maybe the last year or so. Like this group of people on the internet are what Bitcoiners need to be reaching out to because that is the wider population outside of our bubble that will actually have utility for Bitcoin. Like, and it's what it's actually for. And like, it seems like we, we don't need to, like they're slowly falling in towards us just because of all of this shit with MasterCard and PayPal and Patreon. Yeah, I'm trying to look up real quick. What was that uh, Bitcoin alternative? Do you know if that was if it's Bitbacker? I'm just looking that up real quick. I forget, but I think so. But I'm not going to trust my memory on that right now. Well, either way, I think that yeah, that's uh, that's something that's worthy of uh, grabbing the community's attention and you know, kind of creating the buzz around it. I mean, like I've seen it bleed over into. You know, like what Chris was saying, if you see the top of the charts, like what's buzzy, like all of those blockchain guys now are like, oh, you know, uh, subscription services, recurring payments, like, you know, this is it now. And so uh, it's 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 created a lot of buzz and it's got a lot of people looking at different models. And uh, hopefully, you know, that'll kind of rally the community around trying to find the best solution while, uh, you know, it's still kind of uh, very prevalent that this is a problem. Um. I have a few things. I'm listening to all everything you're saying very closely. I think all of that stuff is great. I would love to see um, a Patreon competitor that is Bitcoin based. I would like to see it quite soon. I'd like to see some lightning action going on there as well. But there are some cautions that we need to air. And one of them is that once you start getting a controversial group of people using a censorship resistant payment mechanism like Bitcoin, the incentive, the honeypot incentive for governments and anybody who has something in it for these people is to start mining and harvesting that data. So every time you engage in a transaction on the internet, 
you are leaving a trail of personal identifiable information, digital exhaust, if you will. As you go around the internet, you're giving out your MAC ID address to your local router, you're giving out obviously your IP address, and you're giving out fingerprint data from your browser, all, the, all this kind of stuff. And at the moment, the entire business model, the lie that we tell ourselves for, for the economy of the internet is that it's your identity that we're really harvesting. That's how advertising works. And so whilst we go through this emperor has no clothes, I think we're at the stage now where the kid has screamed at the top of his lungs and told everyone that the emperor is naked. Um, but the adults are only slowly starting to wake up one by one. Okay, it's gonna take a little while for advertising to die as, as an industry uh, because too many lifestyles depend on it too many people actually get something from it existing and i think that if jordan peterson someone of his kind of stature and his following start to get into crypto just be aware that the people that are going to start using it as noobs are not going to know how to use proper uh, counter surveillance measures and you are going to get a large honeypot of personal identifiable information anyone who goes off and makes that patreon is going to have a huge responsibility to not persist data to minimize logging on their computer and then which territory are they going to host that in and if you get somebody you know if you're in russia and you're hosting content and you're mate you know russia officially you know there are no gay people in russia right not officially but if you're making statements about that and you're in russia and the russian government starts to to come down on you um then you're going to have issues there just as one example um there are many other that we can probably brainstorm and come to think of but you get the point and so i think that we do we do have to be cautious um in our support of this new wave of adoption i think personally my preference would be to get rid of 80 90 percent of the speculation out of this industry the speculators just need to go the the, the main use case of bitcoin right now and has been is just speculation it's gambling so it's an online game. If, if you play one of these online games you know the ones where they give you currency in game like what you learn when you use that then you start to see oh wait this isn't too dissimilar to bitcoin and trading and you know how you get locked into a currency you can't get out of but then you're given all these avenues for spending but then all of those are basically gaming and gambling based you, you kind of notice that it's not that dissimilar and I, I think there is obviously speculation is important to, to any economy and arbitrage, you know, but this is, this is, you know, this is finance. And so you, you really have to think, I think you have to get rid of all the excess speculation and you have to start getting intrinsic motivators for why people would want this. And, and this Jordan Peterson thing, if this is just the beginning, I think it's great. I'm not making any statements for or against Jordan Peterson myself personally, but I think that this kind of thing could really get traction. And now you have a reason to hold the asset that isn't purely speculative. And I think that's really important for crypto. Bitcoin really needs that. It needs a circular economy internally. So we've talked about BISC. We've got Adam here from Wasabi. Wasabi will play a role here too, okay, for these people. That, that process needs to be, in my opinion, and I've said this all along, is it needs to be in your browser. There needs to be an integrated walleting system that goes all the way from cold through to your hot wallet. And it needs to, it's not just about managing your keys, it's about helping you manage your finances. What level of risk are you willing to take? Here's your savings account, here is your checking account, here is your current account that you use every day. 
and how are you provisioning those funds and what is the software that you're going to use that's going to help you segregate your money so that you've got some money on a hardware wallet some money in a, in a safe somewhere on a, in a steel wallet and then you've got your browser extension and why isn't wasabi or coinjoin in any case just built into that whole system so that you don't even have to think about it automatically every single you know when you earn i think when you earn your money that's fair game for identity purposes right yeah you should have to say okay i got my money from from here and i'm eligible when whenever you're part of any group right but when you spend your money i see no fucking good reason why anyone needs to know what you're spending your money on especially if it's small amount especially if it's for content on the internet but the, the reason why Patreon and these companies are, are having problems is because they deal with such a large volume and it's so politically sensitive what they're doing that their, their investors just said, look, just comply, just over comply, go more than do more than what you have to to comply with the regulation and shut down anything that is remotely risky. You right, know Randall. what I, I think it uh, could solve that, Chris? Yeah. Charming, charming and e-cash servers. You just yeah, but you're not. In. That's a different layer of protection. I'm talking at a social layer. Like we can have a whole conversation about why governments should exist, but the point is that they do exist and they're not going away. So the question is, what do you do with them whilst we're stuck with them? No, oh, that's my point. Is like if you have a Bitcoin-based like Patreon platform, I put X amount of Bitcoin onto it, and I get a bunch of Chalmian tokens that are blinded. And then I just give them to content creators and they can go collect their revenue. But oh, I see. Nobody has any clue who paid them, just that it was paid through this system. I see what you're saying. Yeah. You know, it was uh, it was your mention of a Chamian uh, coin join server that got, uh, that got you know, e no parse. Oh, Chamian eCash server. Yeah, that got no parse so excited about uh, those coin joins. So maybe... Uh, Somebody will hear that and say, like, oh, yeah, that's interesting, and they'll start building that out. Take those old ideas and put them to some use. Right on. So what, what do we want to have be the last topic of the season and of the year? <laughs> I don't know. Final thoughts, New Year's resolutions? What was your uh, favorite moments of the year as far as like a top three of things that you got excited about? No, let, let's do predictions. That, that's what everyone does. Let's do some listicles. Your top 10 tips for crypto in 2019 or something really crass like that. Where's the clickbaity headlines? I can't believe I left, you know, you're, you're in charge of this thing. Look what you've done with it. I need to see more clickbait. I need to see deeply ironic clickbait from this show more often, please. Um, let's do some crass predictions because they're really easy. Do price predictions. We we could do we could do all all sorts. Or we could just shoot the shit, which is actually my favorite thing to do. I'm gonna say the most uh, salacious headline that'll break while we're on our break will be. Something about backed, backed getting backed again. I'm gonna, I'm gonna predict that. I mean, even though we've already heard a little bit about it, that's so that's kind of an easy prediction. Bitmain will go bankrupt while we're on break. Actually, that's a pretty good prediction. I like that one. Well, so what's Jihan gonna do? 
Like, is he is he got plans? What's what's he gonna move into? Well, if these rumors are true, he's not gonna be CEO of Bitmain anymore. <laughs> yeah, but surely he's not gonna disappear, is he, from the industry? He's gonna do something else, presumably. I think he would. He's made a complete ass of himself for like the last year and a half. I imagine he's gonna work his, himself into something with that ABC client or something with the Chinese government and you know trying to just uh you know build out a a crypto for them or something I mean yeah I don't know if he'll actually just leave the space tail between the legs I'm sure he'll still probably be around yeah I expect I expect he will I mean he's he's still a player and you know you talk about like you know he's made an asshat himself or so is Zuko but you know he's still around people still take him seriously there are people there are people who take him seriously so you, you can stick around <laughs> i expect so the guy has too much ambition you know he cares too much to just fade away so someone in the chat box said that they're bullish on block digest views so maybe we should just summarize uh what we've managed to accomplish in 150 episodes so we started off uh i don't know how many followers the twitter account had um when we started doing the show because i because actually the twitter account was made before the show or it was at least held before the show or the account was um, but I think the Twitter account now has something like 2,300 followers and we have um, somewhere around the same number of subscribers on the YouTube channel as well. And the views are pretty consistent. We usually get somewhere around 500 episodes, um, but apparently people are bullish on that. So who knows where that's going to go. Yeah, I mean, like I'm bullish on... Uh on you know the uh the artwork i know that uh that was something we kind of promised at the beginning of the season and uh you know that introductory art with the theme you know that was something that uh we've really enjoyed this season i know that the theme song's been a hit and uh thanks again fried noodles and uh you know i really enjoy it but uh we do have the continuation of that to where uh you know next season we uh i, I imagine in the hiatus uh, we'll play around a little bit with that other streaming uh app to uh get that all done up right so yeah definitely bullish on uh block digest yeah and i just wanted to let everyone know because maybe you don't um we actually um we curate all of the episodes into each of the seasons so this is season five and you can see the playlists um on the youtube channel if you want to go back through episodes and see them in order we also have besides this you know main string of shows we also have done um special edition shows which are which are specifically interviews with um, specific people they're a lot shorter usually about an hour and then we also have a even shorter series which is called zk snacks uh, that shinobi and i have been doing about specific topics like basically doing explainer videos on one thing um i believe we did so far uh the bit fury surveillance software we did the uh, the one on the lightning network which was my favorite because actually that got used at the um lightning hack days and i can't remember the th oh the third one was um uh segwit and uh segwit and asic boost the differences between the two asic boosts because some people are still messing those two up 
and refusing to not do that. Yeah, it's been a good mix of content. Good 150 episodes under the belt. So I maybe I would say my TMZ parody show where I pretend to be a B-casher who believes all the crazy B-cash shit. Well, the problem with that, Shinobi, is that I mean, I'm being more ridiculous than the actual B-cash people. Great, I don't know if that would awesome work. Awesome content. <laughs> I mean, the one thing I would be curious about, I mean, you can either leave a comment or say it right now in the troll box, but I'd be interested to know what other kinds of show formats people think we should do or show formats that we're already doing, like the special edition um, or the ZK Snacks, if they would like to see more of one of those in particular. Uh, another one we had, which uh, um, was spearheaded by Adam uh, and, and his girlfriend, uh, Deja was the uh, interview series specifically about privacy developments in Bitcoin, which is also a playlist on the channel. Yeah, that's a good idea. Like, um, you know, over this break, it'd be good to, you know, get ask again for a little feedback on, um, you know, what you guys think that we should be doing and uh, if everything's going right or what you like or don't like and all that. And uh you know, yeah, say again, uh, we haven't said it in a while, but, um, you know, the mumble's still out there. You drop in there during the hiatus, got some questions or comments, too. All right, Chris, cough up some, some thoughts. Are we shooting the shit? Is that what's going on right now? It's my favorite part of the show. Okay, let's think. Code is hard. Discuss. It's hard. It's hard to think about all the problems. Like listening to you talk, because um, I haven't been around. I'm really sorry about that. But like just drifting in and out, coming back, and I hear you talk about it should do this. When you, whenever you say we should do it like this, what you're doing is protocol design. Protocol design. And I have kind of a new appreciation for it because you know my recent um, forays have taken me into meeting people that are way way smarter than me and a specialist, you know, in security and just. Being around those kinds of people, listening to them talk, watching them work, you just you know how much you don't know. And so when we talk about stuff like the Glacier Protocol, for example, that came up in the chat, um, all of these kinds of things, it, it is it is very hard to, to execute this well. And let me answer actually the question that came up in the chat, which was, would I, you know, do I like Glacier? I've read it. I have an, a lot of appreciation for that style of thinking, for that way of thinking. Do I think it's right for 99% of the people in crypto? No, because what they're asking you to do is set up two simultaneous air gaps devices. They're asking you to write out by hand. Um, the keys, I think both public and private from memory have to be written out by hand. That gives an opportunity for you know, mistakes to be made, but don't worry because there are so many fail saves in this protocol that any mistake will be discovered. The problem is the amount of time and just the frustration that you that you would go through to execute on that means that I think it's uh, Kirchhoff's if I'm saying his name right sixth principle, which is that the user if the usability of a security system is bad enough, then nobody will use it and therefore it won't be secure. And so the usability, I think that that would be my takeaway for 2018, would be the usability of security is is not appreciated enough. People do not pay it enough attention. And that, that for me, it has to be, I just recently watched the Steve Jobs movie um, with that Fassbender guy. 
who was playing the lead role. And I remember, you know, I've read Jobs' biography a couple of times now, and it was all about bringing computers to, to the people. And the problem with, with, uh, with Jobs was that he was just a bit too early. But in Wozniak, the, the CTO, he found an engineer who was willing to do the work that many, many other engineers just were not willing to do. And that was to make a beautiful, elegant user interface so that ordinary people, the pragmatists, as we call them in business, would want to adopt this kind of technology because Jobs didn't want IBM to become the bell, you know, the telephone company of computing. They didn't want IBM to become the information company in 50 years where they would just own it. And most engineers didn't see the merit of making windows with beveled edges and you know drop shadows and things like this they just didn't see the utility for it and unfortunately for jobs he was just a bit too early and sometimes as an entrepreneur if you're too early it's as bad as being too late but he managed to ride it out he made a comeback and a lot of his instincts as a product designer wouldn't go so far as to call him a product designer but as an ideator as a high level visionary were, were absolutely right. He resonated with people and he was able to communicate to them in a design ethic where, where people wanted to use those devices. They were drawn to them. They had a sort of magnetism, not like Facebook. That's a different type. That's a kind of a, a pernicious, um, kind of an evil intent there at Facebook where they want you to keep going back, where they use your friends against you to, to keep you sticky on the content. Apple never had that kind of intention. It was all about creating a delightful experience. It was like driving a luxury car where you would want it. It was, it was really about status. He was selling you status to the point now where probably the last 10 years or so, Apple have really been in the business of selling gadgets. They don't even sell computers anymore. I mean, the, the computing is just, it's like Amazon don't do retail, right? Amazon basically gather data about your habits as a, as a, as a consumer and then refer, you know, recommend products to you. And then basically the whole market, you know, the whole market they're in is about getting, you know, distributors and, and, and manufacturers and so on to, to use their, you know, their service. So in a similar way, Apple don't really do computing anymore. The computing is highly, highly commoditized to the point where they could do it with their eyes closed. The business they're really in is about looking at new new sort of use case, new users. When, when they do their usability research, Apple, okay, they don't do a ground up approach where like, what's the market asking for? No, no. They interview a bunch of people and then they only listen to the minority. They, they try to find in all these people who are the next people we want to build for? They might be a minority, but they're a significant minority. And we think that they're important. And we just want to build for them. And we want to make them the new kind of, you know, the, the new populace. And we want to bring them to other people. We want to, we want to bring these people's desires to everybody. We want to show everyone why what these people are asking us for is actually what everyone should be asking for. And that's what Apple do really well. And I think they're unique in that. And that's probably the reason why they're the most cash rich business. And so we have to think that way because in crypto, I often wonder to myself as in cryptocurrency, actually both cryptography and in cryptocurrency, like who's the Wozniak? Who's the developer that's going to do the work that other developers don't want to do? And I, and I really, you know, I don't just mean about making bubblegum apps because anyone can fucking make a bubblegum app these days. I'm talking about actually thinking <clears throat> about user habits. Like has anyone actually sat down a group of users with a, with a walleting system and measured their heart rate and their perspiration 
and taking them through a red lane of a product, like a, you know, a wallet software, taking them through a red lane. That means give them the most commonly used set of features, one after the other. So you know, you initialize your wallet. You have to back it up. You have to write it down. You have to remember a passphrase. You you know, maybe um, you know, get some Electrum on the go or whatever you're doing. You're pairing your Trezor with your with your computer. Go through that, and that the whole time through, record them both from behind and from the front. Take heart strap, you know, chest monitor, measure their heart rate, measure perspiration, and look for the areas where they get the most anxious, and then just show the engineers that footage and make the engineers feel the pain of the end user so that you get this empathy on the go, right? Then you start to feel it. Then Now the engineer sees it. They really see on the front line, what is this doing to, to our customers? And you just want to focus the engineer's efforts on those particular pain points. You do everything, of course, you need to do the protocol design. You do everything for the security. But when it comes to usability, you just focus on the parts that are most anxious. For example, I can tell you from my own research that the most anxiety-inducing event in the red lane right now is doing a firmware update. So, okay, you backed up your keys, you wrote them down. Yes, you did all of that, and hopefully you've stored them in a safe place. But now you've got a mandatory firmware upgrade. Oh, fuck. Does that mean I have to check my backup? How do I check my backup? I only bought one device. Do I need to buy another one? Because then you realize, well, if I wipe this device to test it, then I won't have a backup anymore. I'll only have one copy of the private key. And so what's happening now is that because as engineers, you haven't predicted the model. You haven't really modeled the reality for your user. They're now coming up against a problem that you should have anticipated. And, and that's what I think this industry really needs. It needs people that, that, that the whole stuff of the security needs to just keep on going. But then people really need to start specializing in the usability. And fuck all this like gaming bullshit. Fuck, like the hell with Facebook and all this crap. We're putting way too much energy into the wrong things. This, this particular area that I'm talking about right now, usable security, is the thing for 2019 that someone really needs to sit down and, and hammer out. Rant's done. Let's shoot the shit. Go. Riff. Man, I think that was uh, that was well said, man. I mean, like, I think we are actually kind of heading in that direction. I mean, like, there are people putting together products for, you know, like there's the cost to hold a multi-sig service in the node because people want to, uh, you know, they want to have that node and that set up and be your own bank, you know, uh, personal, you know, Swiss bank account, all that stuff. They want it, but they can't technically set it up. And uh, so, you know, we do have people that are building those sort of products. And, uh, you know, the Samurai Wallet guys are trying to build out this uh, node that you can use in SPV with, uh, you know, more privacy and everything. And I think that we're getting there. And like once we have those tools It'll just be easier to do these measurements to see like where exactly people get so stressed out. I mean, like you're absolutely right on uh, firmware updates. That's one that just hit me not too long ago where when it came in, I was just like, oh, man, I get the, you know, got the seat. I'm like worried and, and everything. But, uh, you know, I mean, eventually as this uh, as these new basically areas are being built out of this market, I think that, you know, it'll build the market research to where we'll we'll get there. And uh, yeah, I think you're right on 2019, you know, it's like the usability feature is something that is going to, 
you know, it really needs to come out and uh, be at the forefront. I mean, I think we're seeing it not just with these services and these nodes, but guys like uh, Jack Mallers in the uh, in the Zap Wallet, you know, building a GUI to where people are more comfortable. I mean, uh, it's getting there. But for right now, for a long time, it's just been like, how are we going to scale? How are we going to scale? And now it's like that. That's part of the scaling story, though. That is part of the scaling story. And we should yeah, be promoting, right. you know what, in 2019, I'll make a pledge to to turn up on here and or do it more often. And I think what we should do is we should celebrate the companies that are doing this well. I don't think we should use so much stick. I think we should mostly focus on carrot. So we don't necessarily put down the companies that are doing it badly, but I think we should be promoting. And I think first of all, got to pay tribute to Adam at Wasabi which I, I've taken out for some test runs. I've been recording you know, the various interactions on my screen and studying it. And actually, given the complexity that Adam is trying to, to convey, it, they do a very good job of UX, considering how complex it, it is necessarily because of what you're being asked to do. So I think you know, those kinds of initiatives don't, I think initially we shouldn't just aim, obviously never aim for perfection because you're setting yourself up for fail. So we can't expect an Apple-like product today. And you have to also consider that in business and startup culture, especially when you know entrepreneurs come to do all the business planning, you know, one of the things that they have to look at is, well, why can't a more well-established player just come in and crush us? Like, what, well, you know, we could go off and do all this stuff, but if Apple just take a look at us and go, well, we can just do that in a heartbeat, and we've got so much money, we just keep throwing stuff at it, and we, we, we already know how to make stuff beautiful. Well, one of the reasons why Apple would never touch this is because it's just too hot for them. You know, crypto is probably just way too hot for Apple. I think eventually that a lot of these companies will will get there, um, but that's that's a war for another day for now. I think we just have to celebrate the ones that are doing it right. Maybe get them on here, get them to talk about it. We should interview more UX people that that, that are either crypto curious or, or in our industry. Yeah, and just to reiterate, yeah, uh, no, no par and Adam with the uh, you know with the the Wasabi wallet. That's also another one of those uh, you know pieces of equipment that got built out this year. That's just uh, incredible. And, um, you know, it's good to see all that stuff. And I think that's a great idea, you know, just like kind of try and help, uh, you know, promote these products that are being built out that are going to be very helpful. So, yeah, let's uh, we're over two and a half hours now. Like uh, final thoughts, I guess, is the is the we've done the chit chat now. So the final thought, final, final thought. All right. Uh, let's go with I'm going to say I'm going to start us off here and say that uh yeah i've been uh been really excited about uh what's going on in the meetup space around here and uh you know seeing a bunch of blockchain guys come over and ask questions about bitcoin and you know they're kind of like taking uh you know it looks like they're taking another look at bitcoin and you know that they're getting interested and i mean that's for all sorts of various reasons and uh you know it's been a hard year you know with the market and you know people and the running the meetup and everything. But I mean, like overall, I think it's built like we're finishing out this year very strong when it comes to um, people in this area trying to understand how this system is going to be useful and like where we can take it. And uh, so on that note, um, we got the Bitcoin and beer meetup uh, run by Blockbane uh, around here. And uh, that's going to be on January 1st. 
and we got a Bitcoin get together on uh, January 3rd, 10 year uh, network anniversary party, people. So if you're in the area, let's, uh, let's have a couple of drinks and celebrate. All right, I'll say it. Shinobi, go. Final thought. I'm going to put you on the spot. I know you take it last. I'm going to put you second. I want to see Bitmain burn. All right. There's a thought. Short, short and sweet. I like it. Janine, final thought. Well, uh, Shinobi might want to. Yeah, there we go. So this is a tweet that I had saved in my calendars to specifically bring up at the new year because uh, it's the end of 2018. And uh, Peter Risen predicted uh, actually exactly one year ago today um, that there would be a mass extinction event in Bitcoin nodes or Bitcoin in general and that BCH nodes would take over. Well, I guess we learned our lesson, didn't we? <laughs> Because the opposite happened. Definitely so. All right. Chris, I know we got a lot of thought thinking out of you, but you got a final thought for us before we end the season out? I mean, you could just do, um, I think we should do like Blast from the Past, where we show tweets and claims that people have made like that one that you just showed would be really good. Because in this industry, you're never going to be short of bullshit that you could go through, like the Ethereum and thread that we put up. You know, look at what people said. Hold people accountable for the claims that they make. All right. I like that. All right, guys. Well, that is season five. So see you guys next year. Adios. Bye. Bye. Bye.